morning. It's contemplating just sitting down now. That was so clear, and um, I'm sure that you understood it all, and uh, you could just go to morning tea. But now let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for giving us this part of your word. Uh, as we seek to understand it, to learn what you want us to learn from it, we pray that you might open our minds and our hearts and that we might live as your confident, repentant, faithful people. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think it was the comedian Lily Tomlin who famously said, perhaps if we listen to it, history would stop repeating itself. History is linear. It moves from a beginning to an end, but there is also something cyclical about it, isn't there? The same patterns keep re-emerging in slightly different forms, yes, but recognisably similar. And there's great value in recognising those patterns so that you're not wrong-footed when you're faced with them again. In the last decade or so of the first century AD, the Roman Empire was extraordinarily powerful. It controlled the lives of those within its borders. The emperors had the most inflated views of themselves. The Emperor Domitian reportedly required himself to be addressed as Dominus et Deus Noster, our Lord and God. And he was aided in his iron grip on the lives and consciences of the people in the empire by the priests, the cult of the emperor, who called on people to worship the emperor and assisted them in doing so. Faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus were put under enormous pressure and many were killed for their faith. Refusing to worship the emperor, they would worship only the saviour. And from one perspective, it seemed like the odds were always stacked against them. The alliance of emperor and cult was far too powerful. In the medieval church, the coalition of political and religious power was concentrated in one man, the Pope. The Pope could bring a nation to its knees, imposing sanctions, raising armies. Pope Gregory VII brought the Holy Roman Emperor to his knees. He had to crawl barefoot and bareheaded through the snow to pay homage to the Pope at Canossa in 1077. A couple of centuries later, Pope Innocent III excommunicated King John of England and brought the ministry of the churches in that country to a standstill. And on both occasions, priests throughout Western Europe sided with the tyrannical Pope and nobles rushed off to crusades in obedience to his decree. And meanwhile, men like Wycliffe and Hus were pursued for teaching the truth and when captured were killed. I mean, Wycliffe wasn't killed, you might remember, but not too long after his death, on the orders of Pope Martin V, his bones were dug up, burnt, ground to powder and scattered across the River Swift. In the early 1930s, in what many would have thought was a much more sophisticated time, we'd come so far and knew so much more. Another tyrant seized power, this time in Germany. Hitler and the Nazi party wanted to control not just the levers of political power, but every aspect of day-to-day -day life. And they were joined in this by the German Christian movement who worked with Hitler's regime to recognise the church or to reorganise the church around the Fuhrer principle. 
to exclude Jewish Christians, to institute a Reichsbishop, to ensure that what was taught in the churches was sufficiently German. At one point, there was a move to abolish the Old Testament. Those who did not agree suffered the wrath of the state, imprisonment and worse. And it was against this particular alliance between corrupt government and weak and compromised religion that the confessing church emerged in Germany with prominent members like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Karl Barth. And they put together the Barman Declaration of May 1934. That astonishing declaration an expression of astonishing courage in the climate, began with the words of John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then John 10, verse 1. The one who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate is a thief and a robber. And then it proclaimed, Jesus Christ, as he is attested to us in Holy Scripture, is the one word of God whom we have to hear and whom we have to trust and obey in life and in death. When overreaching political power is aided and abetted by compliant, compromised religion, the result is terrifying. Often it seems unstoppable and often faithful Christian men and women pay an awful price for their continued faith in Christ. There seems to be an almost supernatural power that energises those who wage war against the followers of Jesus. And the point is that such an appalling alliance can be seen right through the period from Jesus' ascension until his return. And friends, are we right to see it emerging again in the most unlikely places today? Overreaching political power actually supported by compromised religion. As we've been working our way uh, through the book of Revelation, which on first reading is so strange, alien and bizarre, we've come to see that the cycles in the centre of the book provide us with different perspectives on what is really happening in the world. What has been happening ever since Jesus ascended into heaven and what is still happening now? The curtain has been pulled back a little so that we can look behind the events that we see in our news feeds on the nightly news and in the newspapers to see what's really going on. And it's like that drone circling the building looking at the same thing from one angle and then another and then another. Following the glorious vision of the risen, triumphant and majestic Christ in chapter 1, we saw the letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, where the risen Christ spelt out what was really going on in the churches, urging some to hold on to the end, to be faithful despite the cost, and urging some to repent. We saw the powerful truth at the centre of reality in chapters 4 and 5. There is a throne at the centre of the universe and it is occupied by the one who is our creator and redeemer. To him who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. And then we saw the first cycle. Do you remember? The, the seven seals. Judgment and salvation worked out alongside each other through the course of human history. Ordinary events which are in reality 
the judgments of God, human sinfulness working out its own judgment in the world. This was followed by a second cycle, the seven trumpets, seven dire warnings of God's judgment unleashed, unleashed on earth, the earthquake and disaster and plague and death. There's something dreadfully wrong and the whole earth convulses in evidence of that fact. But will anyone heed the warnings? Will there be repentance? And at point after point uh, through these chapters, and we'll see that this continues right through the book, we are reminded that in and through all that, even when things look most fierce and unstoppable, God's chosen people are safe. Guarded by God, comforted by God, nourished by God, they are safe. Well, today we arrive at chapters 12 to 14 of the book and its picture language on steroids, as we just heard. There are seven signs, that this time they're not numbered. And as in the earlier cases, between the sixth and seventh signs, there's an interlude. Or there's something that we must know before we continue to the end of the cycle. And what we're given here in these three chapters is a deeply spiritual perspective on reality that all of human life and human history is shaped by a monumental spiritual conflict, but one in which the outcome is already settled. And twice in these chapters, the call to those who read them is to endure. Well, it might be helpful for us just to identify the signs because, as I said, they're not numbered and it would be easy to miss them. The first sign is the pregnant woman who seems to represent the whole people of God, the Old Testament people of God from whom comes the Messiah, the New Testament people of God pursued because of their allegiance to the Messiah. The second sign is the dragon, who stands opposed to the woman with extraordinary power, seven heads, and each of them has a diadem and ten horns. He's identified just a little further on in verse 9 of chapter 12 as that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He stands ready to pounce, keen to destroy the one that he knows is the greatest threat to his power, the child about to be born, the seed of the woman and the hope of the world. The third sign is that son who is born to the woman, and the clue to his identity is in the little phrase, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. It's an echo of Psalm 2 and the promise to the Messiah. This is Jesus, the heir to all the promises and the one who must rule. Well, we'll come back to the action that uh, these first three signs are involved with in a moment. But as we move on to the fourth sign at the beginning of chapter 13, read for us just a few moments ago, we are confronted with a beast from the sea. Here is the great henchman of the dragon, one to whom he will delegate his power and throne and authority. Here is overreaching, tyrannical, political power in all its guises through the centuries, an instrument of the devil and the enemy of God's people and purposes. Powerful, seemingly invincible despite the wound it bears, but its time is limited. 
Faithful Christians in the first century saw this played out in Nero and then Domitian. Those in medieval Europe saw the excesses and violence and compromise of the popes. Those in the confessing church of Germany saw it in the Fuhrer. The fifth sign, another beast, this time from the land. And right from the beginning, there's an air of deception about this one. Horns like a lamb, and yet it spoke like a dragon. This beast, too, is a henchman of the dragon, doing the dragon's bidding, spilling the dragon's poison all over the earth, deceiving those who dwell on the earth, and calling on them to worship the first beast. He ends up making it impossible to live in the world without worshipping the first beast, the political power, and so really to be worshipping the dragon. And even the number of the name assigned to this beast is telling. Six, six, six. No, not six sevens, six sixes. Three, sorry, not three sevens. Not three sevens. It's easy to get confused with numbers, isn't it? It's why I married an accountant, so I didn't have to ever count again. <laughs> but we'll get back to six, 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 shall we? Six, 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 three sixes, not three sevens. The number of broken, fallen humanity always falling short of perfection. The emperor cult, the corrupt medieval priesthood, the German Christian movement, just three examples. So by this point, we know that there's an unholy trinity opposing the Messiah and all who are his. The dragon, the beast from the sea, the beast from the land. And while at every point we're reminded that their time is limited and the full number of God's people are safe, it is a significant time in which they appear to triumph and there is significant danger. So much so that a voice will soon cry out, blessed are those, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. The sixth sign though, amongst all the chaos, is the immensely comforting sign of the lamb standing on Mount Zion. And surrounded by the full number of God's people, that's what the 144,000 is meant to symbolise. And there couldn't be a greater contrast between what we're showing there and what's been going on up to now and will go on afterwards. In a moment, in an interlude, an angel will speak of Babylon, the city set up against God who makes all nations drink of the passion of her sexual immorality. But here in the sixth sign... All is pure and blameless. The redeemed of the Lord are single-heartedly devoted to Christ. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. And this reality keeps appearing, doesn't it? Amidst the terror and the violence of evil and judgment, those whose hope is entirely in the Lord are safe. They're always safe and they will be vindicated. And so the seventh sign, this one is the one seated on the white cloud who is one like a son of man. The image you know is from Daniel 7, where one like a son of man is given a dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. He is the one who executes the judgments of God and here he reaps the harvest of the earth. But a harvest always has two edges, bringing in the good fruit and destroying the bad. 
bringing in the grain and burning off the chaff. The terrible wrath of God is poured out as it must be, given all that's gone on before. The havoc and distress, the terror and suffering unleashed by the dragon and his minions cannot be overlooked and swept under the carpet. It must be dealt with, and it is. And so terrifying, though, God's judgment might appear, it's a good thing. Remember the song of chapter 11. The nation raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding of your saints, the prophets and saints, your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. So they're the seven signs. Seven signs which give a new and different perspective on life between the resurrection and ascension of the Messiah and his return to gather his people and execute the final judgment of God. What we're shown in chapters 12 to 14 is the battle behind all other battles. The spiritual conflict and its outcome is the great reality that determines life as we know it. As one writer put it, though he has been resoundingly defeated, the devil contends for every soul. And though he looks invincible, and though his agents on earth seem unstoppable and resistance at points seems futile, there is an end to this battle. I wonder whether you noticed what Richard Buse once called the Elijah number that keeps popping up again and again in these chapters. 1260 days, 42 months, three and a half years, a time, times, and half a time. Just one echo of the many echoes of the Old Testament in this passage. But it's a reminder that no matter how long the period of suffering might seem to be, it has an end. Elijah prayed and the rain stopped. Three and a half years later, he prayed and the Lord sent rain. And throughout that time of judgment in the middle, the Lord who sent him sustained him. This ultimate struggle does take place in heaven. When the Messiah is born and he's caught up to God and his throne, then war arose in heaven. Satan is resoundingly defeated by Michael and his angels. After all, it was never a battle of equals. And he's thrown down to earth. He has not won. He cannot win. But in fury, he refuses to quit and pursues the woman. He pursues the church of God, the followers of the Messiah, for a significant but limited time. Friends, from time to time, uh, we become just a little bit conscious of that great spiritual battle and its aftermath, don't we? We can feel under attack. And sometimes the forces arraigned against us seem unstoppable. And we have a sense of it being something much bigger than we can see. A spiritual battle where the devil's fury, in his fury, he causes real heartache and suffering. But we know, because God's word assures us time and time again, we know the battle, in the most real sense, is already won. And we can look out at our world and see the next incarnation of the appalling coalition between political power and compromised religion and recognise that this is the work of the defeated dragon. 
but his attempts to wipe out faith and dethrone the Messiah are futile. There is no promise here that you will not be touched by suffering. There are some of God's precious people who will join the crowd of martyrs under the altar. But none of that is happening behind God's back. And even in the midst of it, he keeps you safe. Hold on. Keep going. Endure. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Now, I mentioned that, as in the uh, other cycles, there's an interim between the sixth and seventh sign. There are things we need to know before the cycle comes to an end and we look back and see the vantage point that it gives on life in our world as a whole. The interim this time is filled with the voice of three angels. And what each has to say, in a very real sense, is a consequence of the eternal gospel they've been given to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. The first angel cries out, Fear God and give him the glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Do you want to know what all this means? Why it's relevant? What claim it has upon you? It's a call to recognise who you are dealing with. If you've not heard and not seen unto now what's really happening in our world, what makes sense of it all, giving it direction and duration, then hear this, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him. It's a call to come now before it's too late. You've seen who he is and you've seen what he's doing. You need to bow before him now. The second angel cries out, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. See, nobody could have imagined the fall of Rome in the first century. It was just too powerful. Nobody could imagine the end of papal political power in the Middle Ages. The Pope was just too powerful. No one can resist him. No one in Germany in the middle of the 1930s could imagine the fall of Hitler when Bart was thrown unceremoniously over the Swiss border by the Gestapo and Bonhoeffer was hurled off to a concentration camp when the book burnings were taking place and churches were either being brought to heel or closed it seemed to many that all was lost and there was no way back. But the power of corrupt systems and governments cannot withstand the judgment of God. And then the third angel cries out, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on his forehead or hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. And this time it's a warning. No matter how impressive the power of human authorities might seem, no matter how futile resistance to their demand for worship might appear, no matter how much corrupt and compliant religion says, it's fine, we can follow them. 
don't be fooled. I've actually sat on a committee where people have argued that we can turn aside from the teaching of the Bible because the government has endorsed this and therefore we must too. But don't be fooled. There is a terrifying judgment awaiting all those who, aware of it or not, serve as agents of the evil one in the world. And that judgment is so terrible and so unrelenting that you do not want to be drawn into the worshiping, worship of the beast or receiving its mark, no matter what form that might take in our time. And just when you need it, really, comes the second call for endurance in chapter 14, verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. You see, there is a right way to think about God. Fear God and give him glory. There's a right way to think about those who want to worship or who want the worship that belongs only to God. They will not stand forever and they will fall. There is a right way to think about the seriousness of what corrupt power and false religion in league with each other in this world are offering you. Compromise with them catches you up in the most horrific judgment. Well, there's another cycle to come. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven signs, seven bowls. But this morning, brothers and sisters, we need to hear what we're meant to hear from the cycle of the signs. What is animating the disorder the disintegration and the raging opposition to God in the world is a great spiritual battle that has already been decided. Don't be fooled by the opposition that looks so impressive in the world, even when it's in league with those who present themselves as spiritual, religious or Christian. Don't be afraid. Hold on. Keep going. Endure. They can't win. The battle has already been decided. And get ready to sing a new song as the, as the people of the God who has triumphed. Will you pray with me? Father, please help us to learn this lesson and not to be afraid. Help us not to be drawn into that battle on the wrong side, worshipping the beast worshipping the ancient serpent and turning aside from you. Give us courage to endure. Give us boldness to proclaim. And Father, please bring honour to your son, for we ask it in his name.